You are listening to Sonic Entanglements. Welcome to Sonic Entanglements, a podcast about sound history in Southeast Asia. My name is Mele Yamomo, and in this series, I will speak with historians, musicologists, media scholars, and sound archivists. My guest today is Elizabeth Enriquez, one of the most prominent media history professors at the University of the Philippines and author of the seminal book on colonial radio history in the Philippines. Thank you for joining us today. Could you please introduce yourself for our listeners? Um, my name is Elizabeth Enriquez, but everybody calls me Betsy because it's the name I used from my radio and television days. So when I started teaching, I was already known as Betsy Enriquez. I'm a professor of broadcast communication here at the University of the Philippines in Diliman. I've been teaching for 30 years. That is a very long time. Mm-hmm. From what I understand, before becoming an academic, you also worked as a broadcasting professional. Could you perhaps please tell us what your experiences were in the mass media industry? And how did you start working there? Okay, I started when I was a college sophomore. I was 17. This is how it happened. I never really planned on it, but I joined a declamation contest. And the head of the panel of judges asked me after the competition if I wanted to audition for a radio announcing job. I was 17. I was a teenager. I was so thrilled, of course, to be asked to audition for something like that, to be given that opportunity. So I did. And I got in. And that's how I got started in radio. It was also tough because I was a full-time student at the time. I wasn't really planning on becoming a broadcaster. I was studying to become a journalist. And in those days, journalists were print journalists. But I got drawn into radio and subsequently television. I got involved in different types of programs, but I spent most of the 18 years that I was in mainstream broadcasting in the newsroom, both as a reporter and anchor. It was a very challenging time, actually, when I was in television because Marcos had declared martial law. I started in radio before martial law was declared, but I was already a couple of years into broadcasting when Marcos declared martial law. And the press at the time was operating under a climate of media suppression. It was dangerous to be independently minded. There just wasn't space to uh, become critical or even to report the truth. And then I left TV and I had returned to radio when the so-called People Power Revolt happened in 1986. After that, I went back to television, but a lot of things had changed. And I expected things to go back to the pre-martial law, freewheeling press that was almost licentious. But the broadcast networks became bones of contention, so to speak, between the post-Marcos government and several parties who also had a stake in the networks. At the same time, the media around the world was shifting, partly due to uh, new technologies that were affecting not only the way we produced content, but especially the way content was distributed and accessed by audiences. So at some point, I decided I was going to take a break. And what led you eventually to academia? 
it was totally unexpected, Millet. I was taking a breather from television, like I said earlier, when I was offered by Cheche Lazaro to teach at the University of the Philippines. Cheche was at the time the chair of the Department of Broadcasting. We had known each other from way back and she was increasing her presence in television. She was getting more and more involved in our television work. So we sort of eventually traded places. She got more and more involved in television until she got out of teaching completely, while I began to take on more teaching load until I became a full-time teacher. And at the same time, I started graduate school to earn an MA and later on a PhD. So here I am. What a wonderful story. I'm always impressed by those who could combine a successful career in the industry with research and teaching. We tend to make a distinction between academia and practice, but they really overlap. They do. And, and actually, when I started teaching in 1990, and then a lot of people asked me if I was missing media. And I always said, actually, I don't think about it until you ask. No? But then we have a radio station in the college here at UP. And at some point, I was asked to start broadcasting again. So I did. So I'm doing both at the moment, actually. It must be a privilege to do both because your insights are informed by your practice. In your work as historian of radio, what is the historical time frame that you focus on? Broadcasting is a relatively new media practice. I think we tend to forget that. I always tell my students, when you were born, you already had television, you had radio, you took it for granted. But when you think about it, it is really a rather new practice, a new phenomenon. And in the Philippines, we haven't even had 100 years yet. We are celebrating the 100 years of radio in 2022. So my periodization necessarily is parallel to the 20th century, from the beginnings in 1922, during the American colonial period, until the end of martial law in 1986. I have written a few articles on the different periods of broadcasting in the Philippines but not as comprehensively as I have been planning to. Right now, I'm uh, working on an account of radio broadcasting during the Japanese occupation of the country in World War II. But I have also published a few articles on broadcasting during martial law and also during the revolt in 1986 that resulted in the overthrow of Marcos. I'm taking down notes. I myself am a student of this discipline, and I feel privileged to listen to your research. It's like a masterclass, and I'm really learning a lot from it. I would also like to say how much I enjoyed reading your book. Thank you. It is a very rich source of historical information. My home field is in theater and music studies, but discipline-wise, I feel that I'm really a historian in the sense that I enjoy being in the archive and making conclusions based on my historical findings. I feel you, I feel you. And this is what makes your book exceptional. It is dense with archival finds of sources that have never been published before about Philippine broadcasting and Philippine radio. I was very excited to learn about the sources that you have uncovered, and ultimately, you present a very strong post-colonial historiographical framework. Mm -hmm. What I am curious about is what inspired you and what motivated you to do this work to come to this topic and write this book? Okay. At first, when I started teaching, Cheche asked me to join the teaching staff to actually strengthen the news writing courses. So she asked me to focus on news writing and news production. And it was right up my alley. So it wasn't tough in the beginning. 
and I actually enjoyed myself. I actually enjoyed teaching young people how to do the news and how to uh, gather stories, uh, construct stories, and all that. Then I began becoming interested in other areas, like I mentioned earlier, media and gender, political economy of media, media literacy, cultural studies. But what has taken a lot of my energies, like I said earlier, is broadcast history, which wasn't my intention initially. But when I was a new teacher building my teaching resources, I noticed that so little was written about the history of broadcasting in the Philippines. We knew more about the history of broadcasting in the United States and Europe. So I decided that I was going to do that. I was going to work on that to fill what I believed was a need. So my doctoral dissertation dug into the beginnings of radio broadcasting in the Philippines, which was in the second decade of the American colonial period. I wanted to uh, cover more periods, but then I decided to start with a period that not only contained the beginnings of broadcasting in the country, but a period that is also farthest away from memory. I was in a rush to catch some of the aging pioneers who started their careers in broadcasting during the American period. So I thought that's where I should start. That is really a lot of treasure that you have uncovered. I'm wondering, were your initial hypotheses, were they validated? Or were there shifts in your preliminary ideas of how you would have wanted to tell this historical narrative? And if so, what happened? What caused you to rethink your ideas? Yes, there was a shift, actually. At the beginning, I had a preliminary assumption. But later on, as I was beginning to find more and more evidence of the past, what happened in radio during this period, the sense that my preliminary assumptions would be upturned became stronger. Okay? In the beginning, I assumed what I read in the very scant materials that were written before I started my project. I assumed that they were somehow correct that radio in the Philippines was influenced so much by the American radio or by the Americans themselves that we simply copied the American style of broadcasting. That was the assumption. And that we did that poorly and that that poor copy persists until today. That was a sort of baseline assumption that I sensed would be challenged the more I dug into information about the period. And then when I began to understand what some Filipino broadcasters did during the American colonial period, I saw that there was accommodation, yes, but there was also appropriation. And hence the title of my book, Appropriation of Colonial Broadcasting, A History of Early Radio in the Philippines, 1922 to 1946. As we know, radio is a hungry medium as well as television. At that time, Radio signed on early in the morning and signed off around midnight every day. So that's a lot of hours to fill with programs. The Americans who produced the first programs here in the Philippines could not do everything. So they trained Filipinos to go on the air. Significantly, radio programming at the time was mostly music and music was performed live they found out that there were many musical Filipinos whose performance was actually broadcast quality. Some of them are actually opera performers. So they trained these Filipinos first to become musical performers, singers, as well as performers of musical instruments, particularly a piano. But also there were a lot of orchestras that went on the air. There were orchestras composed of Filipino players. 
but they were also trained as announcers, but they first became very well known as musicians. No? So at first, these Filipinos sang and performed American tunes, especially jazz. But later on, they also sang our own music, such as the Kimbiman, the Balitao, and Awiting Bayan, or folk songs. And then programs in Tagalog, as well as other Filipino languages, began to go on the air. In Cebu, which had the only station outside Manila, some programs were actually in Cebuano. By the mid-1930s, entire programs in Manila were in Tagalog on station KZIB, for example. Five of the six programs sponsored by the companies were in Tagalog and only one was in English. By 1940, most of KZIB's entire programming was in Tagalog. In 1934, the program Balagtasan on the air, which was sponsored by a local company, Elizalde and Company, began airing on KZRM. The program featured prominent Filipino poet Florentino Coliantes and other writers and supporters of Tagalog literature, such as Emilio Mar Antonio, Domingo Carasig, and Epifania Alvarez. Uh, the young people don't remember these names anymore, but they were quite famous in the 1930s. The Balagtasan appealed to a wide audience. As you know, it is a poetic joust. You know? It particularly appealed to those in the provinces outside Manila. So they became very famous. The idea for the program may have begun with the proclamation of Jose Corazon de Jesus, or the king of Balagtasan. We used to call him Huseng Batute. You know? He was declared as the king of Balagtasan in 1933. And a lot of his poetry was actually recorded and aired on radio. And I have kept some of these recordings. Among these pieces were the poems titled Ang Manok Pongbulik, Ang Pagbabalik, and one of the classics, Ang Pamana, which, you know, my generation, we learned this in the schools, no? And we even memorized Ang Pamana. Antikampiano kapag ikaw ay namatay, hindi ko matutugtog sa tabilang luhukan. Obviously, the popularity attained by these programs to a certain extent undermined the colonizers' project of Americanizing Filipinos. The Filipino broadcasters appropriated a foreign medium to insist on some expressions of the local culture, which of course went against the American goal of selling their culture, of course, also selling their products, no, to the Filipinos through radio. So this was something that I realized as I was accessing all of these material that was really the story behind radio in the Philippines during the American colonial period, not only that it was just started by the Americans and Filipinos got into it, simply copied the Americans, they actually appropriated the medium and used it for their own purposes, used it to insist and to insert our own cultural expressions. Perhaps they were not even doing this consciously, you know? It was just something they did. And I would like to say that no broadcaster did this with more impact, and I should say irreverence, than the block timers. Okay, let me tell you about the block timers. The block timers came from vaudeville, the Sarsuela, the Moromoro, and the Comedia. And these were theater performances. Okay? They were theater performers who brought with them the art, the music, the performances that were already popular among Filipinos when the Americans came. The block timers found a new outlet in radio for their performances. 
So they bought airtime and filled it with their own content. You see, the American programmers could not produce enough programs to fill the air. So they were actually willing to sell some of the airtime. And the block timers jumped in and bought airtime and they filled it with their own content. And then they sold bits of airtime to advertisers so that they could support their productions. And the shows were hits. They were financially successes, very successful also, and they were able to keep on producing their own brand of programming. The character of these block time shows tended to overturn the prim and proper culture that the elite was trying to promote using radio at that time. They sang novelty songs. As you know, novelty songs could be naughty and risque. They also used Tagalog as their language on the air. The block timers may not have intended it, but they produced resistances that actually shifted the sound of radio, even if the American influence to a certain extent persisted. Now, let me give you some examples. In the campy song of Herman San Jose and Leonora Reyes titled Halo Halo Blues, the conflict between the local and the colonial is illustrated by mixing the original English lyrics of a popular American song titled Singing in the Rain. You, some of you may remember this. Oh. I'm singing in the rain, just in the And the Tagalog lyrics of a song that appropriated the measure and tempo of Singing in the Rain. In the repartee between the performers, Reyes asks if San Jose has not tired of English songs. And then she uh, suggests that uh, he sings Tagalog songs. But San Jose argued that young listeners prefer jazz and modern music. Reyes retorts that there are listeners who like to hear their own language. In the end, after the argument, they sing a duet. San Jose sings the English song while Reyes sings the Tagalog song at the same time, using the tempo and measure of singing in the rain. Okay, so that was, there was a conflict there, but if you would listen carefully, you'll find that there was that insistence on the local. The comic routine between Deli Atay Atayan and Andoy Balunbalunan softened the uh, otherwise sharp element of protest in the song Alila, which is an allusion to the colonial condition of Filipinos. The slave in the song likens her oppression to that of her country and offers hope that she will be relieved of the cruelty she suffers. If you will allow me, I'm going to read uh, the English translation of the song. So here it goes. The life of a slave, even when oppressed, is occasionally visited by some relief. 
like our country, even as it is manacled. On the day of heroes, it is honored. Like my lowly state, at all times commanded to obey. But when comes a day such as today, my hardships are alleviated. I don't know how anyone would read that, but I would read that as very radical. The reference to today was intriguingly hopeful and hopeful for a day of liberation, liberation from the colonizers. Okay, I hope you're not tired of this, but I want to give another example. Amid the jazz, foxtrot, Hollywood ballads, and other popular American music, some of the local that inserted itself may be described as explicitly nationalistic, bewailing the colonial condition of the country, such as in the Kundiman pieces, Hibik ng Pilipinas, Ibong Sawi, and Kantahi ng Ulila. In Hibik ng Pilipinas, Opera singer Jose Moses Gel Santiago sings, and I would like to read the English translation of one stanza. It goes this way. I am a young man from the Far East pleading for freedom. Now I shed tears, weeping for my country. Isn't that nice? It's beautiful. In this case, the radio broadcast frequencies is a poignant metaphor of the anti-colonial condition. The Filipino musicians and radio performers would have the double perception of the colonial register on one hand and the indigenous understandings on the other. Their broadcast sends different layers of signals and messages that can be heard and decoded depending on who was listening, a Filipino, or an American. Thank you for sharing these stories and for providing us with such an incisive analysis. Oh, thank you. What is perhaps paradoxical is that these sources about the Philippines are in the U.S. archives. One would have to secure a grant to travel there to find these archival sources so that a Filipino scholar like you could tell this history. I think also other historians were not interested in radio because radio was seen as popular culture. And until about the 80s here in the Philippines, probably a little bit earlier in Europe or in the United States, much earlier in Europe, actually, popular culture was not seen as an academic area of interest. And so the traditional historians were not researching in topics like this. No? So, And that's why, you know, when I came in interested in doing this kind of research, it was undiscovered territory, actually. And actually gave me a lot of pleasure because in a sense, I was the first to come in and to dig this up. And it gave me so much pleasure to actually share everything that I had found out uh, doing this research. We could say that radio historians are different from traditional historians who draw more and probably trust more the written sources. Right. What would you say is unique in your work as a colonial radio historian? What understandings of colonialism 
and history did you arrive at in researching an audio medium? That's a very nice question, Malay. So let me say it this way. To me, radio was a colonizing tool. It was quite obvious. And one of my arguments is that it is at least as important in its impact on our consciousness as colonized people as the public system of education, which the Americans instituted in this country. One of my sources said what the Americans did not accomplish by their guns, they did with their music, and radio was the medium that did it. But it was you might say, a double-edged sword, as I had tried to explain. It cut both ways. The medium was also appropriated by the colonized to make it work for them on several layers. While there was indeed mimicry of the Americans, there was also an insistence on the local culture, which was inserted into the imported medium in several ways. Let me use the analysis of post-colonialist Homi Baba, since we were talking about post-colonialism as a framework or a lens to do our analysis. No? Post-colonialist Homi Baba described what I found in colonial radio. It cannot be denied that our music, our language, our radio was influenced by the colonizer. But the meeting or even the collision of the two cultures created what Baba calls liminal space or the third space of enunciation, or the in-between, or the hybrid. The attempts at mimicry produced not a faithful copy, but one where the local culture inserts itself, sometimes in mockery of the colonizer's culture, as those block timers did, actually. One of our national artists, Bienvenido Lumbera, wrote that in spite of the colonial agenda of importing cultural forms that could be addressed to the masses for the purpose of keeping them susceptible to the institutions and value system essential for the stability of colonial rule, national culture can still emerge not only out of the interaction between various folk cultures, but also through uh, both the inversion and reinterpretation of popular cultures. The character of broadcasting then and even now is that of a busy medium of competing channels that are expected to be on the air around the clock. This makes it receptive to all manner of programming. This presents opportunities not only for incoherent, but also conflicting discourses. During the American colonial period, the necessity to fill radio's airtime allowed the suppressed culture to re-enter the public consciousness, rendering problematic the use of radio for the colonizer's purpose. The increasing presence of Filipinos in the broadcast staff in the 1930s, as well as that of the block timers, decentered control over textual production on radio as these Filipino broadcasters took charge of producing their own program material, even as they copied American formats of radio programming. In music, the musical traditions of the Filipinos not only survived the supposedly modernizing influence of American culture, our music flourished actually and took several turns, even as it interacted with the music of the colonizer. Betsy, how important is the inclusion of the auditory sense in our understanding of history? How would you say did colonialism transpire through hearing? And if I may push this line of questioning further, how do you think did colonialism sound like? 
Wow, that's a hard question. <laughs> I wasn't around, but anyway. During the American period, in the beginning, it was, it was American thoroughly. It was the colonizer's culture was the dominant sound on radio, I would imagine, based on the data that I was able to gather. But based also on some of the interviews that I, I was able to conduct, these pioneers I was talking about, whom I caught before they left us, they were actually already producing, to use your term, interferences, in order to insert the local culture, the local music, the local language, and their own voices, their own voices as Filipinos. So the colonial sound was actually very frustrating for the colonizer, I would imagine because they were very happy bringing the radio technology into the Philippines. They were actually saying, wow, this is a new way to bring America into the Philippines, you know, and to, and this I remember from one of the stations, they said, this is a perfect medium to teach Filipinos how to speak English, to give them the proper pronunciation, the proper diction, you know, and to bring our literature to Filipinos, because there was a lot of literary readings that went on the air. No? But this was actually frustrating. So like I said earlier, it was really a hybrid that was produced. That liminal space was there where the hybrid insisted on its presence. And so the colonial sound was not totally colonial. The colonial intent was frustrated at many turns. That was Professor Elizabeth Enriquez, with whom I had the pleasure of talking about her work as historian of Philippine colonial radio. On the next episode, my conversation with Betsy continues as we reflect on researching and listening to the Colonial Sound Archives. Betsy's book is entitled Appropriation of Colonial Broadcasting, A History of Early Radio in the Philippines, 1922-1946, and is published by the University of the Philippines Press. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sonic Entanglements podcast. I am your host and producer, Mile Yamomo. Thais van der Geest is our sound engineer and sound editor. And Jean Bersena is our publicity manager. Our theme music is created by Marcus Hocherforst. Additional sound engineering by Luis Olin and James Zipangan. This podcast is funded by the Dutch Research Organization. This episode is supported by Deutschland Funk Kultur. Special thanks to Marcus Gamo, director of Deutschland Funk Radio Art Department. If you would like to listen to other episodes of this program, subscribe to Sonic Entanglements at Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Pocket Casts. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more, you can head over to sonic-entanglements.com. 